Hi, I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, friends. Maybe some foes. Hope you guys are doing... Hope you guys are doing all right. Those niceties. They don't work in general. (laughs) But during the apocalypse, they definitely don't work. I hope you all are surviving. Um, Fucking been a rough week. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Fires that don't seem to end. Uh, hurricanes, not that I'm at all surprised, um, but it's pretty much as unenjoyable as I thought it was going to be. The end of the world, that is. I feel like the last time I posted a podcast, I was saying that we were on our way to LA, which did not happen. We were, uh, I don't even know where we were coming from, Idaho maybe, We drove up over a mountain pass and literally saw a wall of smoke in front of us. I think we were somewhere in Nevada uh, facing west and we just thought, fuck that. Um, Just to see the smoke all there settled and wherever we were looking and just knowing it would be worse the farther west we went. We said, fuck it. We turned around. We went to Utah, which according to the smoke map that we've been... uh, relying on said that Utah was still clear, which it was. Um, but it was really fun. I love doing things kind of impromptu and compulsively, um, making decisions at the spur of the moment. I, I do that a lot. Um, and I always find that those decisions actually turn out to be some of the best decisions that I make probably because I don't allow my sort of control freak, anxious, stressed out crap to control it. It's just like clear, intuitive flow. Um, anyway, so we decided to go to Utah. I freaking love Southern Utah for anyone that's listening who hasn't gone, who has the opportunity to go. I highly recommend going. Don't go in the summer because it will be miserably hot, but there is something about the landscape there. There's many things about the landscape there. And I'm talking about like from Zion, to Moab and that and everything in between. Um, there's so many things about that landscape that make me feel so many different things. It feels like there are a few places like this in the world, but, um, Southern Utah is definitely one of them. It just feels like very psychedelic to me. Uh, it just puts me in a, in a state of mind that feels so much more complex and comprehensive than the state of mind that I'm in, in some sort of like normal environment. Um, I mean, first of all, because of the, 
uh, because of the way the landscape is, you can see historically the earth, you know, through millennia. Um, you know, there's these huge, huge canyons and cliffs. And I read somewhere recently that the amount of time that like humans, as we know them have existed is equivalent to the height of a piece of fucking paper compared to like these massive, 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 uh, cliffs and canyons. Um, and so there's something about just like seeing in a very tangible way, history and time like that, um, compared to, how I, how insignificant I know not just my own life is, but like modern day humans are in general is very comforting to me. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know if that's a universal human experience, but I definitely feel like that. I wonder if that's why a lot of us like sort of like big landscapes and mountains and oceans and stuff, because there's something about the smallness of how it makes us feel that just feels inherently comforting and calming. Um, like we just have to leave our ego and narcissistic identities at the door compared to the fact that basically we mean nothing in the grand scheme of things. Um, and then there's this other thing that is super profound about uh, Moab, which I guess is related, but you know, you have these, the land basically imploded upon itself. I learned recently that at least the Moab Valley, something about salt and the way that the different properties were interacting with basically the whole uh, the whole valley just collapsed. And so there are these cliffs surrounding it where you see um, the land over time. But in that sort of collapsing, there are these huge, enormous boulders and rocks that are what look like they're in real time rolling down a hill. Um, you know, imagine if you were just standing at the top of the hill and you threw a bunch of rocks down, except they didn't roll all the way down. They just stopped midway. Um, and it's like, like something like time, we're so familiar with time and we're so familiar with movement, but in that landscape, you see both time and movement at a scale that is completely uncomprehensible. I mean, it's so slow and so large and so monumentous that your brain has a hard time calculating it. So it's like you're looking at something, experiencing something very familiar but on a scale that is completely foreign and unknown. Um, and I feel like maybe that's the psychedelic thing. It's like as if, you know, what were those videos that people were recording recently uh, where they would all just freeze and like the camera would move around and everyone was like frozen in, in time. Um, it's kind of like that. Uh, and you realize that those landscapes are changing just at such a slower rate than anything any person in their lifetime with the naked eye could ever understand. Um, every time I go there, it just blows me away and, and sort of, yeah, it feels like therapy in a way. It just sort of like gives me peace of mind and quiet and I feel kind of safe and secure, especially in end times. Um, because even though I find a lot of meaning in my life, obviously, and have this podcast that seeks to find and share meaning, at the end of the day, whatever small little raindrop of uh, importance or meaning my life has is just that. It's just a little drop in a much, much, much larger pool. Um, I'm exhausted. Uh, LA is exhausting. Civilization in general is exhausting, but um, LA in particular is pretty intense. I uh, have not been in a major city since the start of COVID, so... 
Although in the places that we've hung out, Colorado, Idaho, Montana, etc., it's all been in like towns or much smaller cities where you put a mask on when you go inside, but nobody's like wearing masks walking down the street. And so to be here and see people with masks walking down the street by themselves in a residential neighborhood is very strange. Um, And like taking a bike ride with a mask on. Um, I get it. Everyone has their own unique needs and health issues, etc. But there are some things about it that feel a little bit illogical. Um, And of course, this is just me finding the nuance in it all because I definitely wear a mask and support the wearing of masks. Um, But I kind of see how maybe at times um, we can take rules a bit too far or paranoia a bit too far. Um, Logically, it's like if you're walking through a park alone, how are you going to um, get a virus or share a virus with someone else? Like put it on maybe when someone walks by. But anyway, all that to say... It's a bit stressful here. Um, and of course, as as uh, we normally do when we come back into the world, the real world or the fake world, it's like the fake world. Um, we have to, you know, do a bunch of errands and tasks and see a bunch of people, which just kind of makes the stress a little bit more intense because there's so many things going on. So basically, I haven't really slept in a couple of days. Um I felt like I had a lot of really like interesting, profound things to share with all of you, but uh, I'm going to wait to do that until I have more of a functioning, working brain. So um, before I bring you this episode, which I am super excited about, Clementine is amazing. She is very, very similar to me um, as far as our opinions go, our way of looking at the the way of our way of looking at the world goes in our sort of... um, fuck it. I'm going to say what I want. Kind of an attitude. Um, she is a badass bitch basically. And I really respect her and look up to her and feel very inspired by everything she says and her energy and just how she approaches the world. And as always, it's super refreshing to meet people who feel very similar to you. Um, I think it's really unfortunate that part of this sort of patriarchal patriarchal environment that we live in keeps us independent and silenced and not um, banding together in community. And uh, it makes sense because obviously together, a bunch of strong ass women or just strong ass people in general who have taboo, unconventional opinions and decide to live their life in an unconventional way, um, the power of those people collectively is so much more intense Um, so obviously that is one of the many ways that I try to opt out of the status quo and opt out of systems that are not supportive of actual change. Um, and so it feels inspiring and relieving and, um, just makes me feel super motivated when I meet other people that are like me and, and sort of keeps me on course in a way that, uh, I hope we all, have the opportunity to, to experience experience that more and more. I really can't speak. That's how tired I am. So um, before we get into this episode, I want to just talk about some housekeeping things because there's a lot going on. Um, let's see. First of all, I just this morning, um, after a long time, <laughs> I've been working on this for a while um, and just never got it up, but I posted a recommended reading list on my website. So if you go to anyakots.com, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S, 
um, and go to about me, there'll be a drop down and it says recommended reading. And I posted basically all of my favorite books. I'm sure I forgot a bunch of them, but posted all of my favorite books across a variety of subject matters and disciplines, um, but they're all in there. So highly recommend checking that out. A lot of you ask me for book recommendations all the time. So now I can just send you this to that page and I will be consistently updating the books as I read more many of which will probably come from the book club that we're doing. Um, those who support me on Patreon, patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Anya Kotz, which I've already spelled for you. Um, if you support me on Patreon, there's a lot of different perks. We have WhatsApp, uh, private WhatsApp groups where groups of like 20 or 30 of you can communicate with each other, all who are listeners of the podcast. Really great way to, like I said, find community, realize that we're not alone, um, seek support and guidance and inspiration. Um, and we're also doing a book club. I did one in August. We read, we read, uh, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmer, which, is definitely probably like now in my top five books of all time that I've read. Um, it was so amazing to read a book knowing that so many other people out there were reading the same book. And then we all got together on Zoom and talked about it live. Um, and I let all of my patrons kind of lead that discussion and bring up what they wanted to bring up and what struck them about the book or what any sort of discussion that they wanted to have around its various themes. Um, and I found it to be so enjoyable. You know, I'm a little concerned. I did this before when I start, first started my Patreon. I bit off way more than I could chew and the whole thing ended up feeling like just a super resentful project for me. So I was worried when I launched this book club, like, oh, fuck, like this is going to be too much work and I don't want to promise people things that I can't deliver on. But in this case, it had the opposite effect. The book club was so fun and so enjoyable that now it made me not ever want to read a book alone again. So uh, I was probably going to do the next one in a few months, but I've decided to do the next one in October. Um, and all of the books that I'm choosing, basically patrons are voting on which one they want to read within a specific theme. So the last theme was the planet and human's connection to the planet. This, um, in October, it's going to be sort of like spirituality, uh, mythology, sort of looking at the world in an archetypal way. So there are three books that are being voted on, uh, The Marriage of Cadmus and Harmony, uh, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, and Belonging by Tokopa. Um, so if you would like to participate in the book club in October and you would like to vote on which one of those books to read, you should become a patron right away, sign up, uh, go in there and vote. If not, of course, there's much more time to join um, if you're down with reading any of those books or just will accept whatever is chosen by the existing patrons. Um, but basically, we will read this book together over the month of October. And then, as I mentioned, meet together at the beginning of November via Zoom to all discuss it. And I record the video so those who can't make it live can view it. So if you would like to join that, uh, Patreon is the place to do it, patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. And then, as I mentioned, there are also these WhatsApp group chats. We have two of them so far. The first two are full. I am officially starting a third WhatsApp group chat. It's really cool how this is working out. Definitely each of the groups, at least the two that exist thus far, the first one has about 30 people in it and the second one I think has like 23 people. Um, I was going to make the second one 30 people, but the people who happen to be in the second group are extremely active and passionate and I really want everyone to be able to follow the discussion in full and really be able to get to know one another and not just have it be like a bunch of voices that are drowning everyone else out. Um, so I'm capping that group at 23 and then I'm going to start a new group 
And uh, I have lots of different ideas, thanks to some existing pa- existing patrons for helping me try and figure out how to organize these things and help connect you all, because really connecting you all is like the whole point here. Um, so we talked about like, I don't know, making groups based on location or based on interests. Um, so I think I'm going to maybe think of some way to do that in terms of connecting people by location. But the way that it's working out right now is really cool because I'm creating these groups and sort of like people are joining in this chronological order, right? So either people just start listening to the podcast and at a certain time and want to become a patron and a part of a WhatsApp group, or it's like they're inspired by whatever book we're reading or by whatever podcast that we, that I end up putting out at that time. So what's happening, I think, is it feels like both of the groups have like an identity and a personality. And I just wonder if that's because there's just like some synchronistic aspect of when these people are coming, sort of coming into my orbit or coming into the orbit where they want to be a supporter. Um, There's some like thematic uh, trends for each of the group, which is really cool. So I'm starting a new group. So anyone that feels compelled to join now who knows, maybe the other people who feel compelled to join now are like super similar to you and you guys will have lots of similar interests. Um, and that would be super cool. So patreon.com in addition to WhatsApp groups and book clubs. Um, I also, depending on the level at which you sign up, there are t-shirts and playlists and lots of other things. So that's really exciting. New WhatsApp group starting up and a new book club starting up. So if you've been sort of on the fence about wanting to join, please do. And honestly, I know that you're like donating money to the podcast and that's super helpful for me and I'm super grateful about it. But I really do hope that um, all of you find as much value in this project as possible. And I feel very strongly that community is one of the most important things, um, as I've said over and over again. Had I known there were so many amazing people like me when I was in my early 20s, for example, I think I probably made would have made a lot of different choices than I ended up making. I think I would have been a lot braver to live sort of my authentic, individuated life, knowing that there would be a community of people there to find me and hold me once I got there. So I hope that that's what this podcast does, whether or not you sign up for Patreon, you just sort of know that there is a world that is totally accepting of you as you are. And whenever you're ready to step into that, that we will be there waiting with open arms. Um, Because it's true. And it happened to me. And I know that A lot of the other people that I've talked to who listen to the podcast have had the same experience. So that's super meaningful for me. It's super meaningful that you guys listen to the podcast at all. Share it with your friends. Obviously, you can also leave a review or a rating on iTunes. That's a quick way to support the podcast. It makes it show up more in search results and makes the podcast seem uh, a lot more legitimate to sort of more famous guests that I might reach out to to be on the show. They're going to go over there and be like, how many ratings does the show have? Do people listen to this show? Do people like this show? Um, so that's a huge help if you'd like to do something like that or just sitting there or standing there or walking there, wherever you are listening is, um, is amazing and super supportive. And I do believe in sort of like the wooey nature of just the energetics that go into all of this and spending time in our lives, supporting things, listening to things, reading things that are meaningful. And I think if we do more of that, if we, you know, um, use our money to support the things that we like and use our time to invest in the things that we like, that that makes a huge difference for not just 
the person, not just the person receiving the investment, but um, everyone else who might be influenced by individuals and trends and patterns and energy. So um, I think that's all I have to say. I'm going to, I think I've been talking for like 20 minutes. I said I wasn't going to talk that much. I don't know what happened. Um, I'm going to play you into this episode by, with a sexomatic Venus freak by Macy Gray. Once you listen to this episode, you, I think you'll understand why. Um, I've forgotten about this song and just heard it on a friend's playlist recently and was like, that's a badass song. I'll have to play it on Horror Report too, which is my other podcast, by the way, that I host with my friend Aaron, where we talk about sex basically every week. I like talking about sex and gender and everything related to it, so I started a whole other podcast for it. Um, So you can find that on uh, whatever app you listen to podcasts on, Horror Rapport, R-A-P-P-O-R-T. Anyway, we'll probably have to play that song on Horror Rapport as well, but uh, it just reminded me a lot of Clementine and myself and the sort of like badass, strong woman, unashamed, sexually embodied badassery. So uh, enjoy the song and enjoy this conversation and I will catch you on the other end. Super love is something that they say is very rare. In the dark and in your world it's everywhere and I It's the way you love me down Every time we kiss you Bring out the woman in me And every time you holler
All right. I am so excited to have Clementine on. This has been a little bit of a long time coming, I guess. Um, I feel like I just sort of like mass share your Instagram posts all the time because I have a thought and then you post something that's just like very eloquently describes exactly what I was thinking or trying to express. So I'm really stoked to have you share yourself and your opinions um, and viewpoints with my audience. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. So I guess if you could first maybe just talk a little bit about yourself and um, how you would describe yourself and what you do, and then we can maybe get into some more specifics. Sure. So um, I'm a writer and I primarily see myself as a writer. Um, And basically I've been making zines since I was like a teenager. Um, So that's how I've um, existed as a writer is mainly through self-publishing. And now it's like my full-time job. I have a couple books out, but still zines are the primary form um, of publication that I do. And then I guess more people have found out about my work in the past, um, maybe like six months to a year through Instagram. So basically I just started to put a bunch of my ideas in these text posts on Instagram, which became like super, super popular. And so although I already had um, a following, this definitely expanded my reach in like a really huge way, which I actually have complicated feelings about because Instagram is kind of awful in a lot of ways. Um, But yeah, a lot of my writing is about sexuality and trauma, I would say, are like the main two themes. And then I have like kind of a sub branch of my work that is on trauma informed polyamory, which is really popular. And through that, I started to do workshops. And then I recently put out my trauma informed polyamory workshop online as like a downloadable file. So that's like um, a piece of what I do now is like sort of like teaching, but I still primarily see myself as a writer. Sweet. Yeah. I'd love to dive into the whole trauma-informed polyamory piece and have you kind of expand upon what that means. I feel like there's this myth that only like very balanced, totally untraumatized people could handle relationships like that. Um, and not recognizing that I think one, I think people who do have past trauma are drawn to these sort of types of unconventional relationship structures, but also that they can absolutely be utilized to help like confront and heal from trauma in a way. Um, So I'd love to hear like how you came about that and what your, what your sort of viewpoint on trauma informed polyamory is. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, I mean, I first tried polyamory when I was a teenager um, and then I was sort of like on again, off again. Um, But my life, you know, has been extremely chaotic. I'm an alcoholic. And so through like the early part of my 20s, it was like a big trauma fest of like alcoholism and craziness. And so when I got sober, when I was 25 and started to like, you know, be in therapy and start to have a more stable life, I was like, okay, like I was polyamorous before when I was younger. This seems to be what I want to do. It seems to fit with like the vision I have for myself. And so I started to try to do polyamory like in a healthy sober, recovered kind of way. And basically I pretty immediately had a mental breakdown and like really intensely lost my mind and was like um, really shocked because, you know, I think I was like maybe two years sober and I had been in therapy for a couple of years. So I was a lot more stable than I had been. And all of a sudden, you know, I had started this relationship with someone who was actually my best friend prior. And we like started to date um, and we both wanted to be polyamorous and, So, like, everything seemed to be, like, the perfect kind of 
setup. Like it was a pretty secure setup um, for me to be doing polyamory. And yet I basically immediately started to have like really extreme mental health issues and I have complex PTSD. And like now I understand that what was happening is that I was basically having like a huge flare up in my complex PTSD, but I didn't understand why polyamory would um, create that kind of a flare up. Um, and basically, you know, because I really, I, I cope with things a lot by learning. So like, I was like, okay, I'm going to like buckle down and like read everything that I can on polyamory. And what I found is that the majority of stuff on polyamory, like obviously it made me feel a lot worse because it was kind of like low key shaming in the sense that like, it was just sort of like, you know, jealousy is like something that sure it can happen, but like you just move through it. There's like often the advice to just like sit with your feelings and they'll pass and like your feelings can't kill you. And I'm like, mm, I don't know if you understand <laughs> what people with uh, complex PTSD experience in their feelings, but like actually, yeah, like your feelings can kill you. Like that sounds extreme, but it's actually true. Like people in extreme, um, you know, trauma-based episodes can actually put themselves in a lot of danger. Um, and so, you know, there was no understanding of that at all. It was just this really uh, sort of individualistic, like everyone's on the same playing field, like everyone has the same mental health experiences and we're all capable of like pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and like, you know, being, being able to handle whatever emotional reactions we're having. And so at that time... I basically, you know, was like, I, I became temporarily monogamous with my partner at the time because I was like, this is too crazy and I'm starting to actually be afraid about what might happen. And so my partner agreed um, and I spent that time sort of like, you know, in therapy, trying to figure things out. Um, and because I'm a writer, I started to write about this um, and I wrote a series of articles. This was like a long time ago, like 2014 or something. I wrote a series of articles um, just basically exploring like my um, confusion about all of this. And they became everything I've ever done on polyamory where I'm like, hey, this is really hard and I feel crazy has always been my most popular work. Like it resonates really heavily with people. So back then it was really popular. Um, and yeah, so basically fast forward now, like um, I left that relationship. And then um when I decided to start dating again, I weirdly was like, actually, I do want to be polyamorous. So I, I have been actively polyamorous now for like three years and a bit um, and heavily in trauma therapy. And I've just done a lot of this work sort of synthesizing the two things and like teaching like attachment theory and like nervous system education and how that can like actually apply to polyamory. Um, and a big piece of it is like really countering the shame narrative because I think that for a lot of people it's like it's like doubly hard because first they are they feel crazy and then they feel really bad about how crazy they feel and they feel ashamed of themselves for it and so then it, it's just it's just worse you know and so I teach from a place of like a lot of compassion and like offering people like a much kinder way of like looking at the difficult experiences that they're having with polyamory yeah I I think you know, it's unfortunate. I feel like when you decide to be something that's like the unconventional side of, let's say, relationships or even like being a vegetarian or something, you you feel the need to defend yourself so much because <laughs> everyone else is either threatened or just questioning or uncomfortable of, of your choices, which leads to this sort of 
inauthentic expression of like security and certainty. Um, and also I think people have this misunderstanding that like alignment and like making an authentic choice is somehow easy where I feel like when something is aligned or authentic, at least for me, and it sounds like for you, we both sort of learn or grow by learning and challenging ourselves and like moving toward things that are uncomfortable. Um, so I'd like to hear too, like how, and maybe this is a conversation around like jealousy, for example, as something that's more just discomfort or fear rather than like, I'm afraid my partner will leave me. Um, and what journey you had to go on to sort of distinguish between like, is this a dangerous situation? Is this like an abusive situation? Am I being harmed versus is this just uncomfortable because I'm afraid or because I have this past trauma? Um, does that yeah. make, the question make sense? <laughs> it does. I feel like it, there's a lot to unpack there though. But yeah, yeah. Okay. So I think actually you you bring up like a really important um, sort of, I'm actually thinking about writing kind of a, an article about kind of what you just said. And it's like probably mm-hmm. going to be a very controversial piece. But basically when I left that relationship that I was just talking about, that I was in where I was having that mental breakdown, when I left that relationship, I was really unhappy in that relationship. And that relationship actually really didn't meet my needs in a lot of ways. Um, and like part of the reason that polyamory was so hard in that relationship is because my partner was not able and willing to like meet me sort of halfway and doing that work. Um, so there was like a lot going on there. Plus I was like really extremely triggered and I have complex PTSD, but like when I left that relationship and I was so unhappy, what ended up happening is that a lot of the people around me, my friends and community actually really encouraged me to frame that relationship as abusive because I had been so unhappy in it. Um, and so like my, I, I had a friend literally say to me, um, your, your feelings are evidence of abuse, you know? And at the time feeling like I had been abused in that relationship felt kind of really empowering because it felt better than just having a broken heart and feeling really shitty about having spent three years in this relationship that ended up not being for me. Um, so I was, you know, I started to sort of frame that as an emotionally abusive relationship. And I was really encouraged to frame it that way. And it was a pretty shitty relationship. Um, but like, I am a survivor of domestic violence from earlier in my life. Um, and that was an, a very obviously abusive relationship that I had when I was like 23, where there was like physical violence and stuff. This relationship that I had was nothing like that. You know, my partner did not, uh, there was no physical violence. They didn't like breach my consent. They didn't, call me names or degrade me or anything like that. But it was a relationship where I was really unhappy and where my needs weren't being met um, and where my partner was not, you know, sort of doing their, their part of the work that a relationship needs. Um, And basically, you know, seeing it as abusive felt empowering. It helped me to move through the breakup and to like move on because it's easier for me, you know, to feel anger than it is to feel like the grief and the pain. Um, But later, when I started working with a new therapist who I'm still with this therapist and she's really, really great. She point blank was like, that relationship was not abusive. Um, which kind of goes really counter to the, um, mainstream discourse right now, which is just, you know, believe survivors or you're like totally fucked up. Um, she like challenged me and she was like, that's not abusive. And I was very defensive at first, but she was like, you have complex PTSD, you have childhood trauma and you really actually need to develop the skill of discernment 
between what is a shitty relationship and what is an abusive relationship. And they're different. They both suck for different reasons, but they're different. Um, and that was like really challenging for me to hear, but actually was ultimately one of the best things that somebody could have done for me because I was in a scene and a community that was just 100% ready to be like, that was an abusive relationship and to not challenge me at all around, you know, that, that a lot of the intensity of my feelings in that relationship were actually not about that relationship. They were about past traumas that I had had. So this is like a big question for traumatized people, like how to discern between is this currently an abusive relationship or is it just a relationship that isn't meeting my needs or is it a relationship that is meeting my needs, but I still feel completely insane. Like any of those things can be true. And I think that the the narrative that is just like, if your friend is unhappy, you should encourage them to think that they're being abused is actually like not helpful for survivors, actually, especially because survivors, because of our trauma, are particularly prone to not being able to discern the difference between past traumas and the present. That's literally what trauma means. It's like, you know, so anyway, that's like a piece of it. Um, and part of the reason why it's so hard with polyamory is that like a way in which we can discern between whether a relationship is like actually harmful or whether it's just that we're triggered is by talking to other people, right? Like talking to a therapist, talking to friends, like, you know, being like, does this sound normal to you? But because we live in a culture of compulsory monogamy, you know, if you're hanging around, you know, monogamous people a lot, or your, your therapist doesn't know anything about polyamory, if you just tell them like standard polyamory things, they're very likely going to respond in a way that is very pathologizing. So they're going to be like, oh my God, well, I could never handle it if my partner did that. Oh my God, like that sounds really harmful, you know? And if you are already really afraid that maybe your relationship is harmful because you're really triggered, that's going to be really triggering, you know? And I've had a really hard time to the point where like, I've literally had to like tell my monogamous friends like how to support me and to be like, you know, being really pathologizing is not helpful actually. Um, so I don't know. I think, I think that like, it's helpful for people to sort of have some baselines for them, but what, what constitutes abuse for them? Like I will not be in a relationship with someone who calls me names or who, you know, yells at me and like maybe, maybe raising your voice in an argument, like here and there is fine, but like, actually I don't put up with yelling. So if a, if a relationship is, you know, with someone constantly, they, they turn to like yelling at me, that would not be okay for me. Any kind of like degrading or like humiliating or insulting kind of behavior is like not okay. Um, so that's like the abusive stuff, obviously like physical violence, not okay. Breaching consent, not okay. Um, but then there's like, are your needs being met? And this is like more of a gray area because what people need is different, you know? And it actually could be true that your partner is like a really good person who is good at relationships and still isn't meeting your needs because your needs might not align. And like there might be a way of like finding a middle ground where you guys can both compromise and and meet your needs. And I think with attachment style stuff, there's often a lot of work that needs to be done there. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of going all over the place with this answer because I feel like there's a lot that, that I have yeah. to unpack there. Um, but yeah, like... The other piece of it is that, you know, I think there's this idea that if you're able to be like, okay, my relationship is healthy, I can say that my partner is like doing their best and like, you know, this is a safe relationship, there's no abuse that's happening, um, so therefore I'm triggered and what I'm feeling is actually about the past. That's not enough 
just knowing that doesn't do anything, you know, because your body is going to be reacting as if you're in physical danger now, and you're going to feel like you're in physical danger now. And so you actually need to be able to develop skills to basically regulate your nervous system. Um, and that, that's a lot of the teaching that I do is about developing those like concrete skills because it's actually super hard. And knowing that you're triggered is not the same thing as like no longer being triggered. Right. Yeah, it's funny. We've had such a similar journey. Like that word discernment has come up so many times for me too in therapy. Um, and I, it sounds like I'm curious because like af, I also had the same experience with my monogamous friends, right? If I would express some sort of insecurity or fear related to my relationship, it was the, it, the entire premise was questioned, you know, like, yeah. well, if you didn't situate your relationship like this, you wouldn't have any of those feelings. And I was like, yeah, and then I wouldn't be growing and it would just be boring and stagnant. Um, but I'm wondering if for you too, discernment for me became very much tied to my body. And like, I had no connection to my body, I feel like for most of my life in terms of my health, but also just my intuition and I remember saying, you know, way back in the day, I was in a not so great relationship and there was a lot of like cheating going on. And I remember when that happened, I literally said out loud, like, I have no idea what I think or feel versus what the world thinks or feels or like my mother or my friends. Like, I cannot distinguish between what I want and what I feel like everyone else wants for me. Um, so I'm curious if your journey toward discernment and trust had a lot to do with becoming more in touch with your body and your nervous system um, and what that looks like, really. Yeah. So it's tricky because, again, it's like I think that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of narratives floating around on Instagram and in the general discourse about trust your gut and like your body will like let you know. But I'm like, that's not true if you're literally triggered and your body is sending you physical like signs of danger that are about something that is not happening right now. Right. So for me, I've actually had to do like another layer of discernment, which is like listening to my body, but being like, what is going on in my body right now? And is what is going on in my body actually appropriate for what I'm experiencing externally in the present moment? And if it isn't, then I'm triggered and I need to like address and, and calm my nervous system. Um, so I kind of have this idea of like my, my complete whole integrated adult self and like, when I'm in that adult self and I'm connected to my body, then that is the place of discernment for me where I can actually be like, this is good. This is in alignment with my integrity. This is in alignment with my values. And this is when it's not. Um, but that's really hard because so often I fly out of that and I go into my fight, flight and freeze and submit nervous system states. Um, and then when I'm in those states, I have a tendency to strongly believe that whatever I'm experiencing is very true and real. So I have, you know, I'm in therapy and I work closely with a therapist who I really trust. And like, that is the work over and over again, like being able to notice if I am triggered and if I'm in that nervous system state, and then I'm, I'm making my decisions and my judgments out of that place versus like, how do I know when I'm in my adult self and I'm making decisions um, from that place. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to talk about 
those reactions, specifically the sort of fawn submit uh, nervous system reaction, which for I talked about that a bit on my podcast, like similar to fight and flight. Um, because another thing you talk about that I would love to discuss is power in relationships and sexual submissiveness. And there's this intersection, I think, both culturally feeling as if submissiveness is uh, harmful or, or abusive or, or not empowering. And I think that isn't correct. I think it's much more nuanced than that. I think it can be. Um, and I think it's interesting for people that do naturally have a fawn tendency um, to use a certain type of fawning or a certain type of submissiveness, which to me is all about like learning how to relinquish control, learning how to trust, which are all really important for people with like anxious attachment styles, especially. Um, so I just, I'd love to hear maybe you expand upon like, what is a fawn dynamic and how does that intersect with, um, sexual submissiveness and, um, and if it does and how you've sort of like worked to distinguish between those things. Wow, such a great question. We're so on the same page. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. I'm telling you. <laughs> um, okay, so fun response is, um, it's actually interesting. There is a podcast called the the Polyvagal Podcast. Um, and it. yeah, it's a good podcast. And basically yeah. on that podcast, they talk about fawn as not actually a nervous system state, but as a learned response to chronically being in other nervous system states. So basically using the polyvagal theory, um, you basically have your safe and social state, then you have fight, flight, and like a free state, right? Um, and the, those states are like literally sort of like biological states that you can like map in our physical uh, responses to things, um, in the body. And basically, I think that fawn is like a learned response, especially for people who have like developmental or chronic trauma. Like when they were in a situation that was like traumatizing, um, especially like in childhood, usually, um, in which there wasn't really a way to escape or fight. Um, and so you kind of get into this chronic freeze, but like you can't literally be frozen all the time. So I think of fawn almost as like an active freeze response where you're trying to avoid situations that are going to send you into fight and flight and freeze by being good, you know? So you're basically trying to figure out what is the behavior that's not going to get me into trouble? What is the behavior that is going to ensure my safety? So it's like a survival strategy that a lot of people learn um, in childhood. And it has to do with like people pleasing, conflict avoidance, and basically like predicting what kind of behavior is desirable and then doing that. Um, and so definitely I have a lot of fawn in my sort of trauma repertoire. Um, and I can definitely go there a lot. Um, to the, and often I don't even have any idea that I'm doing it. Like I've, I've come a long way in this and I've been unpacking a lot of that behavior, um, a lot recently actually, but for a long time I had no idea that I was fawning or that I just, it was so automatic for me to try to avoid conflict and to try to keep myself safe that I would just people please and like do what I thought people wanted me to do. Um, because as soon as I was in conflict or as soon as people weren't happy with me, it was like terrifying and my nervous system would go off and I would come out of my, my safe place. So obviously I think trauma recovery really, really requires moving away from the fawn response. It requires 
being able to handle conflict, being able to not be liked, being able to understand that as an adult, it's actually safe for me to be in conflict. It's actually safe for me not to be liked. I don't have to please everybody. I can, I'll still be okay. Now on the BDSM side of things, I think BDSM can be like this, you know, when done well, it can be a space that actually allows us to intentionally explore things that we might otherwise act out sort of unconsciously. Um, and the thing about BDSM is that it's, it's like, it has a container around it. Like, it's not just like you're going about in your day-to-day life, just acting like this in every situation all the time, which is what people who have a fond response are doing. Like they are people pleasing at their job. They're people pleasing, you know, in all of their relationships. And it's like super dysfunctional because they're not able to act as an adult. They're acting as, you know, a scared child all the time. But for me, like, because I, I did have this fond response for so long, I, you know, there's a particular type of pleasure that I get out of being good, you know? And so I really had to like unlearn that in my day-to-day life because the goal is not for me to be good. The goal is for me to be an adult who, um, you know, is standing up for myself, whether people think that's good or not. But that doesn't mean that there's still not going to be this part of me that really enjoys that. And so for me, BDSM has been a cool place to like explore that and to enjoy that pleasure in a way that is like safe and contained. And it's not just like acting out in a fond response in my day-to-day life. So yeah, like I'm definitely, um, I'm a switch, but like I definitely lean submissive and I have like a BDSM dynamic in my life where I get to be good. And that is like very enjoyable. Um, and it's like an in- intentional space for me to like enjoy that without it being, um, a real power dynamic in my actual life, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, do you feel like also exploring a lot of these dynamics are also like retraining in a way I was never really met with, I feel like that emotional security of like, yeah, like good job. Like you, you did well, you know? Um, so it's interesting in a different space, in a space that is safe, in a space that is full of trust, um, to kind of really retrain your nervous system around, uh, things that you may have not received when you were younger. Uh, so it is like literally, I mean, there are times that it's kind of freaky, but sometimes I feel like I sort of revert back to a very childhood, childlike state, um, which I think is probably pretty uh, taboo as far as the like conventional rhetoric is concerned. But for me, it's like, this is where shit was fucked up in my past. And now I get to retrain myself around a lot of that. And if that means returning to this sort of like childlike state in order to learn trust or safety, then like that just inherently feels right to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what you're saying makes me think of um, Andrea Glick's work, um, mm-hmm. who is the somatic witch on Instagram. I don't oh, know yeah, if you've yeah. heard of her. She has a workshop online on BDSM and trauma, and she talks a lot about this concept of, yeah, basically like repatterning or basically like being in a similar situation intentionally in a BDSM context, but creating a different outcome than what you had in that, in the original trauma. And yeah, I totally agree. I think that like in the context of trauma, like even if you're trying to be good, 
the outcome is always unpredictable and you may just continue to experience further harm, even if you're really trying to be good. Whereas like in a controlled setting like BDSM that with someone that you really trust, you can like, um, you can make sure that the outcome is one that is of safety and that, yeah. I mean, it's interesting though, because people do BDSM in different ways. And I think that they want different kinds of outcomes and it's not always the same. Like I'm definitely this kind of submissive where I am, um, I want to be good and I don't want to be punished. Like that's not part of it for me. Whereas like for other people, it really is. And that's probably doing something else specific for them. Um, but I'm more along what you're saying where it's like, I want to be able to reenact this um, experience of being good and then be met with like, yes, you did good, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's actually where I have some issues. Sometimes people will ask me about BDSM all the time. And I feel, I feel almost like, for me, anything that I've explored in that realm has been so uniquely just specific to me and authentic to me. And I feel like there's this whole sort of like world and like um, accepted language and context for what BDSM is and what it looks like. And I'm a this and I'm a that. And then we do this activity and this scene and this and that, um, which I understand. But I do really feel like these types of practices are so nuanced and have to be specifically created to your own unique set of experiences and your relationship. You know, it's like that's the other thing what I'm willing to participate in or the dynamic that I have with one person is just not the dynamic that I'm going to have with another person. You know, like I would never, I don't trust people all on the same amount of level on the same level. You know, I don't, I don't feel the same way, um, with a, which with all types of people, which I think gets back to like, again, that discernment and like getting in touch with like, how does this make you personally feel and not just sort of applying yourself to some sort of, community and set of languages or labels or whatever. Yeah. And I think with BDSM in particular, I think this is true with language in general, but with BDSM in particular, like we have to remember that all of these words are just shorthands and like you really do have to have that long conversation because if you say I'm a submissive and another person says I'm a submissive, like those can mean totally, totally different things. Um, and you actually need to like talk about what does that mean for that person? Like, how do they like to feel? What brings up those feelings? I've never topped that much, but I've started topping and like topping is a crazy experience because it's like, you are like, I understood it as a submissive because I was like, okay, like I'm, you know, really giving this vulnerability to this person, but I didn't understand the extent to which the top or the dominant is like so extremely vulnerable because a good dominant, a good top is like, they don't, they they don't want to do something that the person doesn't want, right? They want to be extremely careful and they want to make sure that they are, you know, doing the scene in the way that is going to be good for the submissive and not crossing any, any boundaries. So it's like a huge amount of trust to actually be like, are you being honest with me? Are you telling me like everything that I need to know so that I can like fuck you up in a way that's going to feel good, you know, in a way that you're going to feel good about, you know? Um, Yeah. And like, I think that submissives have a huge responsibility to be able to be very clear about what their boundaries are, what is off limits, how they like to be dominated, et cetera. And yeah, it's not enough to just be like, I'm a submissive. Like you really have to be able to say what that means to you because those words can mean like really different things to different people. Yeah. And I'd love to hear how you think this all relates to the current climate around um, 
me too. And I'm talking more about the like, I'm not talking about, you know, rape or drugging or like very acute, obvious abuse, but these sort of more nuanced situations where I feel like a lot of them to me, maybe they didn't explicitly, they probably didn't because there probably wasn't a lot of communication, um, explicitly deal with power or BDSM. But I wonder how many of these situations um, are related to that, are related to people not totally knowing what they want, saying yes when they sort of mean no, or wanting someone to be dominant. Like, I feel like I've met a lot of women um who like want to be pursued and want to be desired. Like desire is extremely erotic and sort of set up a situation in which they sort of want someone to convince them, but then something happens or they have sex. And then it was like, Oh shit on the now looking back, uh, I think there was abuse or it feels like rape. Um, and I, I assume given your sort of like complex history with relationships and abuse and, um, what your thoughts are on these sort of more nuanced situations that keep kind of popping up. Yeah. I think that we really have failed in terms of creating a culture of sexual education and a culture of consent that actually works for people. And I think that part of what happened is there's this, there's this framework of consent that is consent is verbal and it is given for every act. And the reality is, is that 99% of people that is, does not reflect their sex life at all. Um, and so on paper, we pretend like that is what consent is. But in practice, most people do not do that. And most people don't want to do that. Most people actually don't enjoy that. And I think that there was like this push that's like consent is sexy. Like for a while, everybody kept saying that. And that like we really needed to eroticize, you know, can I touch your arm? Can I touch your breast? Et cetera. Um, and I have a problem with this for like a few reasons. One is just that I think it's fine if people don't think that that's hot and they find it stressful. Um, two, it's actually horrible advice for traumatized people because traumatized people have a tendency to go nonverbal during sex. It's actually very normal for people with past trauma to have a really hard time verbally articulating um, what they want and actually saying things like yes and no. So that sounds kind of dangerous. It's like, how can you have sex if you verbally can't say no? Um, and like, I've been in so many situations. Actually, a lot of the situations that non-consensual things happened that I didn't want actually were in context where people were trying to practice this like really by the book consent because they were like, can I do this thing? And I froze because I did not know how to say, no, you cannot do that thing. And my brain started going like, if I say no, how are they going to feel? Like, what is going to happen? How are we going to transition out of this? And then I I basically said no, or maybe I even kind of went like, mm, or like even maybe said okay, just because I was trying to avoid the conflict of the weird dynamic of what was happening, right? And I'm not saying that those right. people who continued were, were like rapists or that they were abusive. They were doing their best with the communication that was happening in that dynamic, which was not great communication because I was unable to communicate based on my past history of trauma in which, you know, I was right. really scared about what would happen. So like for me, real communication about consent has to make room for nonverbal consent practices, which means that when you're not having sex in a non-sexual situation with people who are your sex partners, you should be talking about, hey, like, this is how I like to communicate. So you have to be kind of creative. Like, if there's like things that are like a hard no for you and you have the capacity to say that to someone ahead of time, that's a really good idea. Even if it's like over text, I highly encourage that kind of behavior because 
that way it's just clear that the person knows don't don't try to do that thing the person doesn't want it but then you can also be like hey you know i don't i'm not really good at saying when i i need to like stop or change so like can i do like a thing where i like tap you twice quickly on the arm and that means we pause for a second right so i think like coming up with these other kinds of strategies are like really really important for actually practicing consent not just so that it looks good on paper but so that it's like actually effective for real people who are having real sex lives and I think we're so far from that in terms of like what the sex that most people are having, especially with like hookup culture. People are just going into situations where there's like very little communication and they're just fumbling around and having sex. And I think what ends up happening is, is if one person had like a really bad experience from that afterwards, they can be like, well, that person didn't verbally ask me X, Y, and Z at every step of the way. But I think what's sort of a little bit complicated about that is that if the person did the exact same behavior where they didn't ask you every single step of the way, but you had a good experience, like it just so happened by the roll of the dice that you guys both like the same things and you had a good experience, you wouldn't probably frame that as a sexual assault, but it's the same behavior. It's, it's the same lack of communication during sex, which is like a cultural problem that we have. And I don't think that the answer is like this very like, you know, weirdly transactional, can I touch your arm? Can I touch your breast kind of consent practice? But it does require like a huge amount of like com- conversations and communication around consent styles. And even with hookups, like I've done things where I've been like, hey, so I go nonverbal during sex. Like if I just kind of stop making noise or I, I sort of am not looking at you, like that means stop. Or like if I tap you twice, that means stop. Things like that can be adapted for like hookups. But it's complicated. And I do think, unfortunately, is like I was saying um, at the beginning of the conversation about that relationship that I was encouraged to frame as abuse. Like, I think that that's very heavily the norm right now where, you know, people are having relationships and sex that is not meeting their needs, that is making them feel shitty, that can even be traumatizing. But just because something was traumatizing, it does not mean that the person that you had sex with is like this horrible fucked up monster. Like it could actually just be that there was a huge lack of communication. And like, this is a very controversial thing that I'm going to say. Go but, for it. <laughs> <laughs> like, basically, if say, basically we put the sort of, um, we put the responsibility on the more active partner. Right. So it's like if the person who's initiating does something and the person who's sort of receiving that act didn't want it, then we say that the person who received the act had their consent broken. Right. But the thing is, is that I actually believe that if that person who was doing the initiating is a decent person, which I think most people are, and they did not want to do something that was unwanted, and that other person failed to communicate to them that it was an unwanted act, I actually believe that that other person also had their consent broken. And, like, as a top, this became really clear to me because I was like, wow, if I, like, fucked somebody or, like, did some kind of an active act to somebody that they didn't want and they didn't tell me, I would feel fucking awful. I would feel so fucked up about it. And I think that that person has a responsibility, even as the receptive partner, to like be upfront about what they want and don't want. And that doesn't mean that it's not hard, but like, I think that we have to figure out how to do that work and that it is not just up to the person who's doing the initiating. And on that point, what I will say is that I'm queer and like, 
a huge percentage of my dating and sex life is me dating and having sex with other femmes. Like I date femme for femme most of the time. And there's like this fucking hilarious and weird dynamic where femmes just circle and orbit each other because nobody wants to be the initiative partner, especially like I'm bisexual and I date a lot of bisexuals who are used to dating men and who are used to not having to take on that responsibility or that risk of being the person who is the active initiatory partner. So we both just wait, you know, and for the longest time, my sex life was like weirdly just going on dates and staring <laughs> blankly at each other. being like, is this a date? I'm not sure what's happening. And I felt really weird about that. And eventually, you know, through my own work, I was able to be like, hey, like, I'm really confused. Is this a date? Do we want to do stuff? Like, what's going on? And it turned out that, yes, the other people really did want to, but they also were really uncomfortable being in that role of initiating. And I think especially for survivors and especially for people who have been in situations where we did not say no when we wanted to say no, we are terrified of somebody doing that to us. We are terrified of being in a position where we're doing something to someone and it's not wanted and they're not communicating that. And so we deal with that by literally never doing anything, by just not being, you know, not taking initiative, not being the active partner. And that creates horribly unsatisfying sex situations for many queer women. Um, and it sucks. So I think yeah. like we honestly need to be able to have these conversations and not just go to this binary of like horrible, bad rapist and like, you know, victim who had no agency in the situation. Like actually a lot of the times it's just failures of communication all around and both people actually have a responsibility to try to work towards better communication in our sex lives. Right. Yes. Uh, all of that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, I think I also, I was just writing something recently about my issue with consent being so focused on verbal cues and verbal communication, because it's like, we only can say yes or no to something if we know if we want something or not. And if we know ourselves to know if we want something or not. And I feel like the vast majority of people have no idea, are afraid of that, don't understand the how their sexuality plays into their own happiness or harm. Um, and I, I've felt the same way about people who are in dominant positions. It's like if the more submissive or the person receiving the action or just in the relationship in general, isn't telling the person if they are okay, if they are comfortable, then they are forcing that person to participate in their harm, forcing that person to participate in their own abuse. Um, and then I just, I feel like that happens all the time. And then they, those people who are on the receiving end say like, no, it's okay because they, they either they don't know or they're afraid or whatever it is. And then they're hurt. And then when you're hurt, it's like, I think that's where this becomes really challenging because it's so much easier to project that somewhere, right? Because it's fucking scary. And so if I can be angry or I can blame or... um I can just push it away. Then I don't actually have to deal with like, why did I, why did I participate in this for so long? You know, like, why did I participate in something that was hurting me? Who am I? Like, have I ever been to therapy? You know, like it just, it opens up this like waterfall of questions that I do feel like most of the population is sort of unwilling to look at. And especially I would say, I mean, I don't like categorizing people into gender, but women, femmes, people are who are more submissive. I feel like especially are, uh, 
are really hard. It's hard for them to do this, which I understand (laughs) given the history and the patriarchy and all that stuff. But my God, like, I don't know how we're going to make any change, meaningful change come about if we don't learn how to learn about ourselves in order to like say yes or no authentically. Totally. Um, I think so. And I think that unfortunately this discourse is like having a really negative effect of like, you know, it's, it's basically like in trauma therapy, I'm like highly encouraged to increase my agency and to like become more responsible for myself and to feel like I have more power and to act in the world with power. And this discourse is basically doing the opposite. Like it's encouraging me to feel helpless, to feel like I don't have power, to feel like I don't really have a say in what happens to me, that I don't have any kind of responsibility toward my own sex life and my own boundaries, you know? And I mean, this is kind of an aside, but like there's this weird discourse right now that is like basically saying that like 25 year olds can't consent because they're too young. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Like, this is so not okay. It's so infantilizing. It's so infantilizing. And it's, like, actually insulting to me as a literal survivor of pedophilia. Like, I am a survivor of pedophilia because I was a child, you know? And it's not appropriate to sort of use that kind of language about fully grown adults, like, in their 20s and stuff. Like, it's completely insane, man. Like, I don't think that that is a healthy, healthy discourse at all. And it seems to be increasing where... Yeah, there's all these things about like a 25-year-old and a 30-year-old and they're like the 25-year-old was a victim and could never have truly consented because she was too young or something. Right. Yeah, I mean, the whole grooming thing too. I mean, you know, obviously the age of consent, I think it needs to be there, but it's also like, you know, we're all individuals. We all have different experience. It's a different age in every state, you know, like obviously this is a nuanced issue. Um, But, you know, if you are a quote-unquote adult and you tell someone you're okay with something and they follow your lead in that I understand that like at 17 18 into your 20s you don't really know who you are but that's not the other person's fault you know just because you engaged in something because you weren't aware it's like I always ask myself this question because I've been in a lot of these sort of more nuanced situations with older people who you know at least on paper had more quote-unquote power than I did Um, but like, would I have preferred them if I walked into a situation with them and I was like, yes, I'm good with this. This is what I want. And I was, let's say in my early twenties, would it have been better for them to be like, "Mm, you know what? I don't really trust that you actually know what's good for you. So let's just not do this at all. You know, (laughs) like to me, even if it ends up hurting me in the end, that giving, having someone in that position of power, give me that agency and allow me to make decisions for myself even if I had to learn in a hard way through them, to me seems like where we should be going. And yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think we should be encouraging ourselves and each other to treat each other as adults if we are adults. And like, that doesn't mean that like you shouldn't have conversations about age gaps. Like if there is a large age gap in a relationship, like I think it's worth talking about openly in that relationship and talking about like how that might be influencing power dynamics and stuff like that. Or yeah, just like knowledge, like you said, like I'm 33, like, you know, I've been through a lot. And like, if I'm dating someone who's like, you know, substantially younger than me, they may not have had all the the lived experiences that I've had, et cetera. Like it's worth talking about. Um, but I think just like this blanket rule of like, if you're in your twenties, you are basically a child is completely going way too far. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to talk also about another thing you speak about, which I feel like is bizarrely semi-controversial, um, around community and relationships. I, 
I was basically in like nonstop monogamous relationships from 16 to 26, 27 or so. And I got a lot of flack for that. Like, oh, you've never been on your own. Like, you know, you're just, you're super codependent, blah, blah, blah. And I finally ended a relationship and I was like really confident that, you know, what I needed to do was like learn how to be by myself and be independent and like not have to depend on anyone. And I went into therapy with this like rallying cry of like, I understand what I need to do. Blah, blah. And uh, she was like, yeah, well, you know, now that's probably good. It, it's a good thing to figure out who you are and what you want and learn how to be independent. But actually what I think you need to learn is that um, you can trust people and people can love you in a healthy way and that you um, are sort of you know, able to find relationships in a community of people that will support you. Um, and I wonder what your experience with that is, because I do feel like there's so much rhetoric around codependency that uh, I think prevents intimacy in many ways. Uh, and I see sort of like community and dependability as like these beautiful qualities that um, I think a lot because of patriarchy, we don't value anymore. Um, but sort of what that all sort of means to you around depending on people and actually being supported by a community. Totally. It comes up with the polyamory literature a lot where there's this idea that like you have to be able to regulate your emotions independently. And if you aren't able to do that, it's like inherently codependent and like inherently, you know, you know, it's dysfunctional to, to need other people. Um, if you're, you know, having a hard time with your emotions, you should be able to sort those out on your own. Um, and it's like, the fact is, is that that is completely factually untrue when you look at our biology. We are social mammals. We literally are social mammals. We have an entire nervous system that is literally designed to facilitate co-regulation and two nervous systems um, working together to regulate. Like, that's literally the kind of species that we are. So, like, as... Um, you know, the kind of mammals that we are, like you can see that we don't have fangs. We don't have like big nails to like defend against uh, predators. We are like herd animals. Like we would live in, in smallish groups, you know? And so like our ability to have relationships with one another was like a survival mechanism, you know, that we absolutely needed to have. And so like the, the stuff around polyvagal theory and like the 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 research into the nervous system, I truly think that this is, like, the forefront of, like, trauma research, but also just, like, regular, like, being a human being. Like, this is knowledge that we need to have. And, like, there's all this stuff around, like, you know, like, the muscles and the face and the way that, like, we perceive emotions with each other. Like, we have all of this um, biology that is literally the purpose of it is to facilitate relationships. There's also been, like, studies where it's, like, I'm trying to remember where I read this so people can look it up, but I think it was in, um, I think it was in The Body Keeps the Score, um, mm. one of these trauma books anyway, but basically it was like um, a study where they put, you know, someone in like a brain scan to like look at their brains and to some of them, like they lied to them and were like, we're going to do something painful to you, just like minorly painful. So it was like a scary situation. And some of them had their partner holding their hand and others were alone. And like the ones who had their partner holding their hand had like an entirely different physiological response to that 
frightening information. Like they were way calmer. They they were not responding like they were in huge danger, right? Whereas the other people who were alone, they had like a way bigger like nervous system response of fear and danger. So like, yes, if we are connected to other people, our nervous systems feel safer. Our nervous systems are designed to make sure that we can be in safe relationship with others. Um, and I think under capitalism, and under like massive alienation that we live under, like we've been really taught that it's like weak and weird to like need other people. And even in like social justice, like world, we've still somehow like internalized that. And like, um, we like wrap it up in kind of different language, but we still fundamentally believe at the end of the day that like it's our own emotions are only our responsibility. And like, the truth is, is that there is self regulation skills that people should have. And then there's co-regulation skills that people should have. And we should have both of them. But if a person was just self-regulating all the time and was having no relational connection, like I think that, I think that that would be very hard for most human beings to do because we actually need um, to co-regulate. Yeah. Yeah. You bring up such a good point too, about so much of the sort of polyamory literature talking about a lot of this. Another thing that I think is similar where this comes up is this idea that, you know, because we live in this like patriarchal monogamous environment that we rely on one partner to provide what like an entire community used to provide. And there's part of that I understand, but I also feel like polyamory can definitely be used as like intimacy avoidance and to maybe excuse not so great relationships because at the end of the day like I'm not choosing to have multiple partners because let's say my main partner isn't good enough or because I'm really lacking with them in certain areas and so I need to make up for it with someone else which isn't to say like relationships with lots of different people aren't different obviously they are um but I think that's why it's like so important when you are living or making choices that are more unconventional and not necessarily upheld by the culture that you don't just read this stuff and use it to excuse, you know, your own harm and uh, how important it is to really think individually and authentically and like, again, get in touch with your body and like go see a therapist. And um, it's so much common rhetoric that's accepted that I, that really just gives people who are making healthy unconventional choices I feel like a really bad face yeah and even within like I mean I think we still live you know under compulsory monogamy where like the mainstream is like very intensely monogamous but like within like particular subcultures there can be like a reversal of that and I think within queer world like polyamory is almost like totally the norm now um maybe not everywhere, but like, you know, definitely where I am, most queer people are polyamorous and there can be like this weird reversal where now we pathologize monogamous people or we're like, whoa, like that's so dysfunctional of you that you're trying to get like, you know, the majority of your intimacy needs met by one person or whatever. And I'm like, honestly, I think that there can be like a huge variation in where people are getting their intimacy needs met. And it's fine if people are monogamous. It's fine if people have like one or two like safe relationships that they really trust. And then they're like working on that with other people. It's also true that for traumatized people, like it may be incredibly difficult to reach a place of trust and intimacy with even one person, let alone with like multiple people, because it tends to take us longer to do that work. So, right. Yeah. Um, do you have a little bit more time? I don't, I forgot to ask you where you were at, but I'd love to Yeah, I'm okay. talk. Okay. Um, so I'd love to talk about shame <laughs> more. <laughs> um, and cause I feel like there's so many different things around this. Uh, but I guess, you know, I've, I've, 
I've been thinking about shame a lot recently because I feel like I was very, I tend to do this thing where I think we all tend to do this thing where there's like a problem and we feel like the solution is the complete opposite. Like we do this weird overcorrection, you know? Um, and I think I felt because of my experiences with shame, like shame was never a viable strategy for constructive change at all or healing at all. And then I sort of started to realize like, maybe it's just that shame isn't a viable strategy for constructive change or healing in the world that we live in. Like, let's say we lived in groups of 50, you know, and someone was accused of something or someone did something wrong. At least there'd be like a group of people to one, support you, to have your back if someone was accusing you of something you didn't do. Um, whereas now there's not really any due process. It's just like, you're bad, go away, um, and sort of pushes that person into the shadow. And I know you've kind of experienced some of this firsthand and have a lot of opinions about it. And I think this is, I see shame used as a strategy in so many social movements right now. And I find it to be pretty awful. <laughs> and I think that's a really um, taboo opinion to take. And I feel like really only comfortable talking about it, at least within the world of Me Too, like as a woman. Um, but I feel like it crops up in all of these different social movements. And uh, I wonder what you think about that and also whether you feel like there's part of that desire to shame or that desire to be angry or blame that has something to do with unprocessed trauma. So I'm like way more anti-shame than I think anybody that I know. I yeah. don't actually think shame is useful at all under any circumstances. Um, and that is because the way that I define shame is that shame is actually a deep belief that there's something wrong with you. Um, that that you are bad, like at your core. Um, and yes, shame is um, fundamental to most people who have developmental trauma. Most people who have developmental trauma have like really intense shame-based personalities. Um, and I have a theory about why that is, um, which is basically just that shame in the context of developmental trauma is actually a strategy to feel like you have more control than you actually do. So if the context is that you're a child and like things are happening that are scary or your needs are not being met um, and you're extremely overwhelmed because as a child, you have literally no power to, uh, you know, stop that from happening or to get your needs met. Shame, what it does is it it says that the problem is not that my parents are abusive or neglectful. The problem is that I'm bad. The problem is that there's something about me that is making my parents behave this way. And if I can fix that, then I will be safe and I will be loved. And so shame actually functions almost as like a regulating belief when, because to be like, well, actually I have no power and my parents are terrifying would be way too much for like my child nervous system to handle. Right. right. So yeah. instead I'm like, I'm bad. And then that gives me like some kind of sense of control because I'm like, if I could just figure out what to do to be good. And that's goes into a lot of the fun stuff that we were talking about earlier. It gives me like an active strategy to, um, yeah, to actually, um, feel like I have more control than I do. So that's why I believe that shame comes from for a lot of people, um, at least people with developmental trauma for sure. Um, and for me, I make a strong distinction between shame and remorse. Remorse is what I believe is the healthy emotion to, I did something that I regret. I did something that is out of alignment with my principles and my values. I did something that was hurtful to someone else. And I, I feel bad about that. That's remorse. 
because I can feel that way and still think that I am a good, worthy, and deserving person who does not deserve harm. Um, I'm an abolitionist, and I like am very intensely an abolitionist in the sense that like I don't believe in punishment at all, and I don't think that punishing people is an effective way to stop harm. Um, I don't. I just don't think that it's effective, and so a lot of where this comes from for me is that I'm an alcoholic. And so there's a lot of people, you know, in social justice world who are up on this high horse of like, you know, pointing fingers at everybody else and being like, you know, all these people did such fucked up things and people kind of, I'm always like, wow, you guys are throwing stones and I'm sure you live in a glass house. Like nobody <laughs> wants that. Nobody wants anybody to like look very closely at, at their behavior. Um, but I will never be in that position because I have done fucked up things. I can never claim innocence because I was an alcoholic. Like I was actively in, you know, alcoholism for like nine years. And I, I was like a street involved, really intensely dysfunctional alcoholic. So I've done all sorts of things that are like no longer in alignment with, you know, my values and my principles. So I don't claim innocence in any kind of way. And what I have seen, so I, I got sober in a 12 step program. And so like 12 steps, are what taught me about how to take responsibility and how to feel genuine remorse for what I had done that was harmful. And actually it is remorse, not shame that actually allowed me to um, take responsibility because like the model in 12 steps was that I was immediately met with community who were like, yep, we're sure you did some really crazy shit. We accept that you're welcome here, have a coffee, you know, and I was surrounded by love. I was surrounded by community that was unconditional. And I was assumed to be a good person regardless. And I'm not talking about, you know, we're canceling people for like posting the wrong thing on Twitter or something. I'm talking about actually like having assaulted people, having done things that are like literally objectively harmful, right? Even these people in 12-step programs are treated with love and compassion and welcome. And a belief that their behavior and the worst things that they've ever done is not reflective of who they are as a human being and that they can actually take responsibility for those things and change their lives. And I've seen that happen with people who have done crazy shit because I've also sponsored people and like I've worked with people and they've done all sorts of things. And now they're like, you know, people who act in alignment with their integrity and do good in the world. If I were coming at it from a place of shame of, Oh, I'm a terrible, bad person. You know, I deserve punishment I mean, that's so painful that likely it would just lead me back to the bottle. Like it would not give me the strength and the support and the community that I needed to get to a place where I was able to take responsibility, you know? So I really want to encourage people to, to dis distinguish between shame and remorse and to be like, it is normal and healthy to feel remorse when we've done things that are harmful. Um, but even if we have done things, this is an extremely controversial take. I'm just dropping controversial takes on your podcast. But it's like so the funny thing is like it's not at all controversial <laughs> to me. You're like in such good company. Uh, I'm yeah. so glad. But yeah. even if someone has done something objectively harmful, so say for example, they assaulted someone, something that we're gonna just agree is is harmful. I still believe that that person actually fundamentally has the right to have boundaries, has the right to say no to what's being asked of them, has the right to, you know, say, this is what I'm going to do in terms of taking responsibility for what I've done. And this actually, I'm not going to do because it's actually out of alignment with my integrity and it crosses my boundaries. I also think that people who have caused harm have the right to a full and beautiful life. 
I think that people who have caused harm are allowed to be in a band. They're allowed to have a career. They're allowed to fully live a full life. And it's crazy to me because right now abolitionism is like trending. It's like everyone's claiming to be an abolitionist, but we are at the same time operating in the most punitive kind of way we could possibly act. Like to say that a person who has caused harm is not allowed to have a career is punishment. Like that's just what it is. There's a difference between being like, okay, this person has caused harm and we want to intervene and ensure that they don't cause harm again. Sure. We can do that. But like a person having a career does not like, I guess the only exception to this is if it's like, if it was like a teacher who abused their students, maybe they shouldn't be a teacher anymore because they are, they are like having access to young people or whatever it is, you know? But like in most cases, that's not the situation at all. It's like, um, you know, I don't know. Like there's many different examples, but like a band is like one example. People are like, you're not allowed to be in a band anymore. And I'm like, what does that have to do with anything except for that it's punishment? It's punishment because we don't think that a person who's caused harm has the right to enjoy success and to like have a fun, cool thing like being in a band. And I don't agree with that. I think that a person, even a person who's like a rapist or like did something fucked up, I think that they should take responsibility and I think they should change their behavior, but I think it's okay for them to be in a band. And that's like a <laughs> very extremely controversial thing that I have. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so crazy to me. I mean, I agree. The fact that we're not willing to have conversations with anyone. I feel like even when the thing happened at the very beginning of all of this with Louis CK, I was like, does and nobody really want to just be like, Hey, what was up with that? Like, let's talk about it. Like, what is it about your sexuality that, you know, made you do this? What, you know, this woman said yes uh, when you asked her if it was okay. Like, th- these are all such amazingly interesting topics for me. And I have such a degree of empathy as well for people that cause harm. I feel like a lot of it's just stemming from past traumas that they had no control over. And like punishing them and canceling them and silencing them to me seems like we're just perpetuating the same abuse that we're pretending we're trying to solve. Um I'm curious on the opposite end, like, where do you think it comes from as a culture for us that we, there's such a large swath of people that feel that shame and anger or blame is healthy or like viable as a strategy? So I don't know, I guess one perspective and idea that I have is that I actually think that in all of this, you know, we very rarely talk except for like in the most like tiniest ways about capitalism. And we very rarely talk about the fact that there's like this tiny percentage of people who literally own, like, I don't even know the percentage of wealth, but like they just, they just own everything. And we're also like, we're literally on a planet that like, you know, may not be viable for human life in like um, a generation. Um, It's like pretty bleak and it's pretty disturbing. Um, And the degree of powerlessness and despair that people are feeling is so incredibly intense, right? Because how do you fight against that? You know, like how do we fight against these powers that are so much bigger than us and that control like the military and have like the police behind them? It's incredibly daunting, right? And that powerlessness is incredibly overwhelming to the nervous system. Like when I think about climate change, I actually go into like a panic response and then I freeze and shut down because it's terrifying and overwhelming to a level that I don't have the capacity um, as a small animal to deal with, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't have any, like, I'm not, there's no, there's no organized 
power to actually change any of this. And so what's happened, and I actually think that this has to do with neoliberalism generally and the downloading of responsibility onto individuals, is that if I feel helpless and overwhelmed from how incredibly fucked up and disturbing the world is, well, what if I just get this guy fired from his job, right? Like, if I can attack a person and use that person as a symbol for, like, all of this huge systemic violence, I can actually feel like I do have power because it's a lot easier to destroy a person than it is to destroy, like, Amazon or, like, one of these giant corporations that is, like, running the world, you know? And so I do think that it comes from a place of, like, helplessness and overwhelm. Um, and that kind of like righteous crusade against like a random individual. Like I'm like, you know, getting that person fired and destroying their life is actually not creating any systemic change. So it's like a part of it. And then I also think a, a lot of it has to do with the stuff that we've already talked a lot about in this conversation, which is that people are triggered and they're, and I don't say that like, you know, dismissively or like, to be insulting. I understand what it means to be triggered and it's extremely overwhelming and it feels like you're in a profound danger and like you're going to die, you know? And so I think that people do have histories of trauma. Many people have, you know, childhood trauma that they've experienced. Also, like we're living under these systems that are extremely traumatizing. So people have a lot of trauma and then, you know, something happens and they get triggered. And so they respond with the full force as if their life was in danger when it's like, totally not an appropriate response to like, you know, somebody posting something on Twitter that you didn't like or something, you know? Um, so I feel like it's a mix of those things. Yeah. And where do you feel, I know you did a post about this, which I loved the intersection of shame and grief. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that to actually begin to heal shame is to like get back to that original um, lie that we told ourselves that I was talking about earlier, which is just that like, you know, I, I told myself that I was bad so that I could feel like I had more control than I did in a situation that I had no control in. And then unfortunately I have just continued on my life with this belief, which is totally maladaptive and it's actually like really harming me now. But initially it came from like this positive place of survival. So if I go back to that original lie that I told myself, I have to ask myself, well, why did I tell myself that lie? And it's because I actually was in a profoundly dangerous um, and, you know, not loving situation as a child. And so that is like profound, profound grief of like not having my needs met. Um, and so, yeah, that's like huge trauma work of like actually going in there and grieving. And I, I think that it's like really unfortunate because, you know, we don't have like, like in like capitalism, all of the sort of like symbolic and like cultural things. Like obviously there's still people who have religion or who have, um, they're connected to some kind of like, uh, culture that is offering them these tools, but many, many people are totally disconnected from any of that. And so we have no symbols or ceremonies or like any kind of uh, practice to help us grieve, you know? And, like, we have funerals when people die, but, like, we definitely don't have any kind of, like, community 
uh, ceremony for like a child, like abuse survivor, for example, which is like a huge amount of grief. And like, how do you move through that? Like in isolation? I think that's really, really hard. And I also think that there could be a parallel that's drawn with the stuff that I was talking about, about climate change. I think that there's like a huge amount of grief that people are feeling about the species loss and like the huge amount of like devastating change that we are seeing, you know, whether it was like, you know, the Amazon burning or the ice caps melting and like all of this like horrifying stuff that we're like, wow, like, you know, so much of what we love is dying um, and we have no way of coping with that. And so, you know, going down to this like really simplistic shame-based mentality of I'm bad or you're bad is like much easier and feels much more empowering than like, holy shit, this is like really awful and sad, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I would say the same thing. I talk about agree, uh, talk about grief a lot on my podcast. And I also feel like as a culture and a society, we have no containers for that. And I think, you know, whether it's like intentional or not, for me, I think a lot of people have experiences on psychedelics like this, where they sort of like have all these realizations and they recognize where they were wrong or things that they were taught that maybe like just are not true. Uh, for me, I feel like grief was my psychedelic experience in many mm. ways. I feel, I feel like when I allowed myself to feel emotions and feelings that like truly I don't think I felt until I was 27 years old, um, that that's where it was like, oh, wow, okay, like I am connected to the earth in this way. Like these, I was hurt so tremendously and I have so many emotions about that and it was a wake up call to like myself, to the world, to my empathy for other people. So it's interesting to me, like in this like capitalistic patriarchal environment that we try and prevent that as much as possible, because I think like psychedelics, like, you know, other practices, these are ways for us to individuate and become authentic and recognize that we exist in a world that doesn't support us. I really think that, yeah, like, I think that you're right, like, that 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 intense grief can be a wake-up call for people and can connect people to, like, reality. Um, I also think that it's it can be so overwhelming, and because we don't have these containers, people are afraid that they're going to die if they feel that, you know? And I think that we are in a culture of, like, massive addiction um, and numbing so that we don't have to feel the intensity of the grief. And, I mean, I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober for eight years, but, like, I am so... Um, aware of the way that social media functions um, as as addiction for people, you know, and it has for me, I'm like trying to log off way, way more than I used to. But I think that that constant scrolling and like the dopamine hits that people get from social media is like one of the many ways that people are using to like not feel what we're talking about. And like, I think it's true that the answer is that we do have to feel it if we're going to get out of this, like we have to feel it. But I also wonder about how we can try to do that safely or in a more safe way so that people don't become incredibly overwhelmed um, and are not able to cope with the, the severity of it. And that's where like community is supposed to come in. Like we're supposed to have communities that help to have this container. Um, and we really need to start building those communities because I think most people don't have that. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating to me. I feel like social media does this dual thing where like one, it's a distraction and you get these dopamine hits, but I, it also allows people to participate in this very sort of like performative 
activism or performative expression that like is in itself avoidant like oh okay if i just like post these five things on my stories then like i've done the work and i've checked that box and i don't actually have to touch base with my own feelings and what it would mean for me to heal what it would mean for me to actually like play a unique role in some sort of actual change absolutely social media is like Basically, it's like this fake way that we try to fill like all of these huge voids that we have in our lives from this like horrible alienated culture that we're living in. There is um, a really great uh, conversation um, that was, do you know Jacobin, Jacobin Magazine? Mm-mm. They're like a socialist magazine and they have a YouTube channel where they do like various like uh, basically it's kind of like podcasts, like people talk about various topics and they had one with Benjamin Fong um, and... Amber Ailey Frost and Matt Christman from Chapo Trappos. Mm-hmm. And they, it was called Log the Fuck Off. And they were talking about this. And yeah, basically they were saying that like people don't have political lives anymore. Like people don't have unions. They don't have like organized on the ground political community. They have posting and like we use posting to like fulfill so many of our um, thwarted needs under like, you know, the alienation that we are experiencing, whether it's like feeling like we have friends or feeling like it's like we have a, a political work that is meaningful and is actually changing things when in reality, like it's incredibly performative and shallow, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, hopefully everyone feels that this conversation was the opposite of that. <laughs> um, I'm going to let you go, but this was such an amazing conversation. I'm sure we could go on for many more hours. Um, but before we wrap up, if you could just tell everyone where they could learn more about you and find your work. And then I always ask everyone uh, who's on the show if they could recommend one book that uh, was really, really meaningful to you or that relates to this conversation or not. Uh, what might that book be? Oh, that's such a hard one, the book. I know. I um, know. You can pick a couple if you're <laughs> <laughs> um Okay, so you can find my work at clementimorgan.com. That's my website. Um I do have an Instagram, even though I was just hating on social media <laughs> very intensely. I'm like making a I'm making a commitment only to go on twice a week right now though. Um so I'm still somewhat active on there and it's just at Clementine Morgan. Um so those are Oh, and I also have a Patreon, um, patreon.com slash Clementine Morgan, where I post like twice a month. Um, in terms of books, I feel like that's really a hard one. Um, like there's just so many books like flashing in my mind right now and I don't know what to choose. Um, I would say like kind of in relationship to uh, the conversation that we were having about sort of like cancel culture and all of that, I would recommend Kai Chang Tom's book, I Hope We Choose Love. Um, I think that that is really important. Um, And actually, weirdly, what's coming to mind is um, the science fiction of Ursula Le Guin. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm like kind of a sci-fi nerd, but... Ursula Le Guin writes like incredibly beautiful sci-fi books that explore a lot of questions around power and around um, like the organization of society and like whatever you have to, you have to read it, but that's what I'll suggest. That sounds awesome. Thank you. No problem. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Thank you again for coming on the show. This was amazing. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're right. We do agree on a lot of things. (laughs) Thank goodness there's somebody. (laughs) 
Hello again. Thank you for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you agreed with or liked or even were just curious about anything that Clementine was saying, I highly recommend um, following her on Instagram at the very least. Obviously, please also go support her on Patreon and buy her shit. Um, But just following her on Instagram, I swear to God, everything she posts, I'm like, yes, that's exactly what I was thinking, except you just said it in a way more intelligent, eloquent, perfect way. Um, So she basically just like takes my random... uh, random thoughts and puts them into a context that makes sense and she doesn't even know she's doing that but she is so thank you clementine um anyway please go support her and her work um and reach out to her tell her you heard her on the podcast and that you really appreciated what she said because fuck we need more people doing more brave shit um and i i feel really strongly that you know when someone says something or does something that you agree with um just sort of saying thanks and I agree is super meaningful. That's how this whole podcast started actually because I was posting Facebook rants on Facebook, obviously. Uh, colossal waste of time. But I got a lot of messages for people that were like, I don't really have the balls to say what you're saying, but I really appreciate that you're saying it. And it made me feel really confident that if I started this podcast that there would be an audience of people who would actually listen to what I had to say. So the more we support each other like that, I think the better off we all will be. Um, again, if you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe on the iTunes store, leave some stars and a review. Or if you would like some extra shit and you have a few uh, dollars to spare each month, you can head over to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. Um, join at various levels. There are exclusive podcast WhatsApp groups. Uh, book club that we are doing in October so feel so be sure to join that if you'd like to be in the book club in October and t-shirts and playlists and community and um I have no more words and I'm so tired so I'm gonna play you out and try to struggle through the rest of the day I wish I could take a nap but I don't have time uh cannot wait to get back to my normal much more lazy life honestly um I am going to play you out today with uh, Never Enough by Eminem and shit, it's not just Eminem. Eminem, 50 Cent, and Nate Dogg. Um, I was listening to this song in the van the other day and I was feeling like particularly in like a battle-esque kind of a mode for those who know anything about or follow astrology. It's Mars retrograde right now. Mars is... The warrior, I would say, along with many other things, but Mars is, uh, when a planet goes retrograde, the strength of that planet, or that archetype, is just a bit heightened and um, a little bit more hyper-focused. So there's a lot of, like, warrior, battle, fuck-it energy going on right now. Mars is very strong in my chart, so I relate deeply to this. Um, anyway, this felt like just, like, a, a battle cry kind of a song. Not that I, like, support everything that Eminem and 50 Cent are rapping about, but um, I really do believe that we need to be brave as shit right now and overthrow systems and structures that don't support us and not be complacent and not think that someone else is going to solve the problem. Uh, I just interviewed a 16-year-old on the podcast, which I'm really excited to bring you. Um, So someone who's in Gen Z, and uh, honestly, her perspective of millennials is very similar to adults perspective on millennials that we like talk a big game but we're kind of lazy pieces of shit uh but honestly hearing it from a young person made me feel a lot more motivated to like do something than when you hear it from someone older than you um anyway 
let's not disappoint the kids. Let's not disappoint those who um, don't have the ability to make a difference or to stand up for themselves, who don't have the privilege to make a change and inspire other people to do the same. Um, This is the time, seriously, if not now, when? Like, the world might end. So let's do some shit. Uh, Enjoy the song. Love you all. You are the best. I'm sorry that this episode, or at least this, <laughs> the episode was great, but the intro and the outro, I don't know. I, I'm not even going to listen back to it because I feel like I probably sound like a tired train wreck, but um, thank you guys for supporting me either way. Cause you know, we can't just have all good days. All right. I'm sweating. I'm sitting in a hot room. I'm just going to end this episode now and stop complaining. Have an amazing week and I will talk to you next time. Not much you could do or say to phase me People think I'm a little bit crazy I get it from all angles, even occasionally Doc crazy you have to step in every once in a while to save me To make me stop and think about it before I just say things Sometimes I forget what other people just make think A lot of rappers probably wouldn't know how to take me If they heard some shit I later take for they erase me I may be a little too fast-paced and racy Sometimes average listener rewinds and plays me 20 times Cause I say so many rhymes it may seem Like I'm going too fast cause my mind is racing and I could give a fuck what category you place me Long as when I'm pushing up daisies and gone As long as you place me amongst one of them greats When I hit the heavenly gates I'll be cool beside Jay-Z For every single die-hard fan who embrace me I'm thankful for the talent in which God gave me And I'm thankful for the environment that he placed me Believe it or not, I thank my mom for how she raised me In a neighborhood daily that jumped and chased me It only made me what I am today See, regardless of what anybody believes who hates me You ain't gonna make or break me Try to strip me my credibility and make me look fake G, you're only gonna be in for a rude awakening, cause sooner or later you haters are all gonna face me, and when you face me with all the shit you've been saving to say to me, you had all this time to think about it now, don't pussy out and try to about face me, cause I've been patiently waiting for the day that we finally meet in the same place to see no matter how many battles I've been in and won, no matter how many magazines on my nuts, no matter how many MCs I eat up it's never enough, no matter how many battles I've been in and won, no matter how many magazines on my nuts, no matter how many MCs I eat up, oh, oh, it's never enough. My flow's untouchable, now you gotta fix it, uh-oh, it gets worse when I go back to the basics, you go, say the wrong shit and get your whole face split, the smell of victory, love it so much I can taste it, I spot my target, blaze it, direct hit, crazy, you peace talk, save it, your shit sounds, dated, Jehovah, rated, I'm up, get it up, study your moves, and crush you motherfuckers If I'm the best and the worst Then God's gift is a curse So the train to destroy You paying attention, boy I spit shit, slick shit So quick you miss it To be specific I go ballistic, it's horrific My music is a drug Press play, you ain't gotta sniff it Shoot it or pop it Roll a bag of the chopper To get you high over and over But you gotta cop it When it's hot, it's hot You hating, it's undeniable Stop it No matter how many battles I've been in and won No matter how many magazines on my nuts No matter how many MCs I eat up Never enough, no matter how many battles I've been in and won, no matter how many magazines on my nuts, no matter how many MCs I eat up, oh, oh, it's never enough.